The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, this prayer of the psalmist, in which he opens by asking you for your blessing, for you to cause your face to shine upon us. Your radiant face of glory, would you make that to shine upon us? That's his hope. And we who today know Jesus have experienced that. You have made your radiant face to shine upon us in the face of Jesus. And we say thank you. You are a good and gracious God. You have done this for us all by your work, all by grace. And we continue on then with the psalmist's request that this blessing to us would result in something, not just in the, the enhancement of our life or not purely in the, the joy and the delight growing in us as we look at you. He wants that. We love that. We are thankful for it. But his prayer is that, therefore, we would reach on out to the nations and they would be blessed because we have been blessed. We are in need of your fixing and of your healing of us. And in part, your fixing and your healing of us is that the nations, that those outside still would be fixed and healed. In part, you shine your face on us, that through us you may shine your face on them too. And so we say thank you for doing that, for including us in that process, and we pray now that you would grow us in this. That you would grow us as a church, as a people, that you would grow us in desire and then in effectiveness in following you into your outreach to others the growth of your kingdom within each of us and then beyond us into others. Please do that and do that this morning in part by causing your shining face to, to be before us and to grip us. Cause your face to shine upon us this morning, please, Lord. Do so from this passage that we'll look at in Luke chapter 9. Would you please make the words in it real? Make them live. Make them, make them sing for us, your people here. Perhaps there's conviction that needs to come, but I think particularly, the emphasis this morning, Lord, is particularly, I think, on encouragement. And so please encourage us. Shine on us. Shine on us who already know you. Shine on us. Bless us in this way that others may be blessed also with your shining face. We need you to fix us and heal us and grow us. In part, that's for them out there still. So do that work this morning by your spirit, please, Father. Lift up the sun. Magnify the sun. Be good to us, your people. 
and in so doing, draw in others. Do your work this morning, we pray. Focus our attention on your word. Make it clear. Change us and grow us and honor Christ for his glory and for our good, I pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 9 where we've been considering Jesus' call to discipleship, his call to come and follow him. And we've spent several weeks looking at this particular passage, various aspects of it, including first the initial commands in verse 23 of Luke chapter 9. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily. We looked at that and saw that is a hard and high calling on us to deny, to to die to ourselves, our own desires and our own feelings and our own inclinations, our own agenda, put everything on the table, all of it surrendered to Jesus. Then come and follow him. That's the starting point. It is a hard call. And then we went on in that passage and looked at at further emphases in in that paragraph to kind of flesh out the call. He expects, as we saw, disciples to be controlled willingly by his word, not to be ashamed of him and his word, but instead to be controlled willingly by it, by what he's modeled and what he's taught, which means particularly, as he has modeled and taught, following him into his kingdom-expanding mission. And as we do so, we saw, he emphasizes that he, war- he warns us, in fact, against being hooked on, filled up with, in pursuit of all the stuff of the earth, all the things of the American dream. So use the things of earth, enjoy them, yes, but live for them, find life in them, no, find life in Christ. And in part, doing that will involve us, this was last week, evaluating our time, our schedules, what we actually do with our time. We looked at this from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a passage that I alluded to in a previous sermon, but we, we kind of went off, off track last week and looked at 1 Corinthians 7 and saw there that since the time is short, we should think carefully how we use our time, how we use everything that we do as devoted servants of his, for his kingdom to grow, not just ours. To think like this and to to, to be a people like this will profit us immensely. That was the repeated emphasis throughout this paragraph, and we talked about it every week. It would profit us immensely. He tells us this for our great good. But it's a hard calling, no doubt. It is a high and hard call. But at verse 27, Jesus begins, the very end of that paragraph, Jesus begins to turn our eyes a little bit, to turn our perspective in a way that prepares us for the next passage in Luke 9, the one we're going to look at today. Verse 27, Jesus mentioned that some of his listeners, before they died, would see the kingdom of God. And while that's a little bit disputed, what he's getting at there, it seems almost certain that what he's getting at is the next paragraph. That they would see some of the kingdom realities. That they would see Jesus in glory and Jesus reigning. They would see the glory of heaven revealed in a certain way. Kind of, kind of a, little, a little peak or the covers pulled back. They would, they would catch just some of it. That's what we see here this morning is three particular disciples are given a chance to see the spiritual covers pulled back and to see the realities of the kingdom. So we're looking at 
really this morning, I'm going to read the passage and make two observations that I think are designed to encourage us by revealing something to us about the glory of Jesus and what, what he's about in his kingdom. So I'm going to read verses 28 to 36 from Luke 9 and then go back to it and make two observations. We're looking at Jesus here. Looking at Jesus and his glory and, and, and his mission. What he's about. Verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying... The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. It's the passage. I'm going to make two observations kind of concerned with the, the identity of Jesus and the, the mission or the purpose of Jesus. Here's the first one. Jesus is the Lord of glory, the one we are called to follow. Jesus is the Lord of glory, the one we are called to follow. The passage begins by directly connecting us back to the events that had just happened. About eight days, it's approximate, about a week or so, after these sayings, so he's directly saying this is related to what came next. Jesus took three disciples and went up on a mountain to pray. And what, what's, what happens there? What's revealed to them, and then eventually through them to us, they didn't talk about it at first, we're told, probably because they didn't understand it, didn't know what to make of it. But what's given to them is it's somehow related to what's come before, and I think, as I've said, along, it's related along the lines of encouragement, to encourage us as we face, as we deal with that hard call to discipleship that he just issued. Indeed, he says, give everything to me, lay down everything for me, come follow me, dying daily. That's hard, but our passage today, this is the one we're called to follow. Look. He looked like Jesus, ordinary guy. When they went up on the mountain, when he started to pray, when they fell asleep, he was just Jesus. But while they were asleep, something changed, and the glory of Jesus' deity overwhelmed, if you will, the, the humdrum of his humanity. It says that his appearance changed, was altered, particularly the visible part, the part they could see, the face, was changed, so much so 
that his clothes were changed also. In verse 32, it says, after the disciples awoke, it says they saw his glory. They saw something of the glory of the Son of God here. Indeed, they also saw, clearly, they saw the other two guys who we're told, verse 31, they also appeared in glory. But there's a distinction here, not like Jesus. It says they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So they were in some way in glory, but Jesus is different. Jesus is the only one who was altered in this way. Clothes that became dazzling white. Literally, it's like the flashing of lightning. That's what the language gives us. It's, it's a flash of lightning that stays on, if you can imagine that. And still on, and still on. This is Jesus. They, they recognize that it was still Jesus, but he is there standing ablaze, lit up in light. Like a bolt of lightning. Like the shining glory of God that we read of so often in the Bible, particularly in the wilderness wanderings. This is light. Very often in the Bible, the glory of God is expressed as light. As shining. It's something that we, we, lack, we lack words for, but we can see the, the image of, of goodness and purity and, and burning and brilliance. It's light. So often, that's glory expressed as light. And here Jesus is, bolt of lightning bright. This is alarming. And think of, think of them, they wake up and notice this, and think of how it stretches their understanding. This is Jesus Last time they were with him praying, in the same chapter, if you look up into verse 18, they'd gone with him praying before, and this didn't happen. But last time they were with him praying, he'd, he'd initiate this conversation. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say I am? And they batted around the options. Well, some say you're this, some say you're that, some say you're this. Well, what about you? And then Peter gets the right answer. You are the Christ. You're the Son of God, the Messiah. Which is right, but which Peter doesn't understand. We talked about this before. We realized that that's why immediately Jesus, Jesus recognizes, yes, but don't talk about that because you don't get it. But it is right. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. In fact, when the voice speaks in verse 35 here in our passage, that's what God's voice affirms. This is my son, my chosen one. He, he's saying he is the long-promised, ever since King David, I had promised that, that a great son of David would be claimed by me as my unique son who would sit on the throne and who would reign, the Messiah. This is the one, exactly. Jesus. And, and he kind of gets that. This is the, this is the Messiah, up in verse 31, he up in 21, he understands you are the Christ. And Jesus says, but you don't really get that. I am the suffering Christ. I'm the one for whom it is necessary that I be rejected and that I suffer and that I die. So we might say that, that up above there, Peter thinks too highly of Jesus. He doesn't understand Messiah is a suffering Messiah. Peter gets Messiah but thinks too highly of him. And here... He thinks too lowly of him. Messiah, yeah, but you don't really get that either. 
You really don't understand. I am Messiah, and I am Messiah. This is glory in stunning light that sets Jesus aside very uniquely, that shows the, the glory of God rests on and even in Jesus. This is further emphasized for us as the passage continues. Verse 30, it says, Behold, two men were talking to him, Moses and Elijah, and Peter seeing them, he doesn't want that moment to go away. He says, Let, let's, this, is, this, is, this is wonderful. Let's make tents. Three of them. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. You all can stay in a tent. We disciples will sleep on the ground, but we'll have a tent and we'll just stay here. This will be wonderful. Do you see the line there that Peter's drawn? Three disciples on one side. On the other side, the three dignitaries. There's the great Moses. Moses is the man in the Old Testament. Moses is the deliverer of the people of Egypt from Egypt. He's the giver of the law, the Old Covenant. He's the one who leads them through the the wilderness wanderings. He's the leader and judge of the nation. He's the connection with God. He's the, he's the mouthpiece for God. He's the prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament. He's the man. And then there's Elijah, who's the great worker of miracles, and the one who opposed wickedness. Remember him cleansing the land from all the false worship. And he was given the honor of, of preceding and, and announcing when this Messiah would come. There's Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and Peter just says, wow. Let's let this day never end. The three of you guys here in tents, and, and we'll be here with you. What's wrong there? What did Peter not get? It says at the end of the verse, he didn't know what he was talking about. Building tents is not silly. Building tents is not the problem. It's the line. He divided three and three, and he should have divided one and five. That's the problem. He sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus is all right there. That's what he missed. That's what then gets clarified further for him. Cloud comes. It comes and, and overshadows them, and a voice comes out and says, This is my son, my chosen one. It's the voice of God affirming that he's the Messiah. To him, listen. The end of that sentence. The end of the voice, voice of God says, to him, emphasis on him. To him, listen. He's underlining Jesus here. Quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18, where Moses spoke of a coming great prophet, to him you will listen. Same words right here, to him listen. Never mind Elijah, never mind Moses, their jobs are done. Jesus, to him listen. And when the voice stopped, verse 36, Jesus was found alone. That's his statement. The others are gone, they're no longer to be found. Jesus is found, though, Jesus alone. This 
is the Lord of glory who is standing here ablaze in light. And the Old Testament headwater prophets are gone. All of the attention in the passage is focused in on Jesus. All of our attention is to be drawn in and to look. This account is designed to highlight Jesus as the promised prophet who supersedes Moses, as the coming Messiah who is the one who follows Elijah's ministry. This is the Jesus lifted up in front of us before whom we are called to lay down all of our lives. You see why this is put right here? This is put here after this very difficult, very very strident call to die to yourself. This is the one who, who issues that call, and this is the one who then issues the, the matching promises. Lay down your life in front of me. You'll find life from me. I'll give you life. Lay it all down. This is, this is place right here for, for two different groups of people, depending on which group you're in, and maybe if you straddle both a little bit. Think about what this is designed to produce for us. A clarity. If, if you're kind of wondering, who is Jesus? What, what should I make of him, and how should I respond to him? There's a clarity lifted up here in front of, in front of our eyes. Moses is a great prophet. Moses taught many good and wonderful things. He taught the law of God, which is true and right. And many of the things that Moses taught, many of them, not all of them by any stretch, but, but many of them are found in other teachings and other religious leaders' writings of the world because they're good and right. So Moses and the, the teachings that we all hear in all the religious instruction of the world all essentially are saying, Here's what goodness looks like. Do this and you'll be good. At which point we might say, oh, it's all kind of the same then. Until we realize that Moses is given, Moses is given to teach those things. Do this and you will be good. And then also to say, but nobody does it. And you can't. Do this and you will be good. And you don't, so you aren't. There is another prophet who must come after me to teach you something different and something better. Not something from the outside, but to teach you something on the inside. That prophet is coming to him, you must listen. Moses passes away, and along with him, everybody who teaches anything at all similar, all religious teachers pass away as Jesus gets lifted up onto the center stage and all focus drawn onto him. Do this and you will be good, but you can't and so you don't. Here's the prophet that you must listen to. He's the one who teaches inside and what he teaches us is there's a way i make you good and i make you right there's a way that i act to bring you into the kingdom there's a way that i act to save you and the work of god is to believe in me the one that he sent so if you're wondering who jesus is if you're if you're kind of considering, do I, do I hear this call of lay down all of my life in front of him? I'm not sure. you got to think about this and say, what he's actually doing is he's following on the heels of every other good teacher. P. 
picking up where they leave off and saying, I can complete the job. I can do what you can't. I make you right. I cleanse you. I provide forgiveness for you. I bring you to God. You can't. You can't follow their teachings. Moses is a pointer. Elijah is a pointer. Here's the king and here's the kingdom. So if you sit in the camp of evaluating, what what do I think about this, this one who calls me to give up everything? You look at this passage, and maybe what you see here is this is God's evidence. The glory of God rests on Jesus as all others fade away. He's the Savior. But that being said, what we all, most of us here, most of us here are the church, and we need to recognize this is actually written to people who are already members of the church professing Christians. What's it here for for us? Here's what I find it doing in my life and what I think it's supposed to do in your life. I come out of verses 23 to 27. Somebody at the door last week said, can you preach next week about how hard this is to do? And just kind of acknowledge that. Like, this is really hard. To examine, I was talking last week, for those who weren't here, about all of our schedules, every single moment, Saturday morning included, Thursday night, even after an exhausting day, everything is on the table in front of Jesus, surrendered to him. Can you preach next week about how hard that is? Okay, that's extremely hard. I come out of that saying something like, who is worthy of such a task? I can't do that. I come out of that feeling in some way heavy. Hearing those calls and thinking about them, I preached a bunch of sermons on that passage on purpose so that we don't get away from it, so that it lands and rests heavy on us. Hearing that passage, that paragraph, leaves me... confronted by give me all of your life pick up your cross daily and then follow him who is the suffering servant as we just saw elaborate on who must be rejected who must suffer and be killed come follow me this is going to be great Come follow me into a world that will at best be mostly indifferent and often will be highly antagonistic. He invites us to come walk into that with him. And then he says, and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't beat on them and triumph over them. Lay down your life in front of them too. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Even those who don't care, even those who oppose you, and the struggles and the difficulties and the disappointments just kind of pile up for me. This is the life, this is the way of the cross. Do you feel this? 
You feel this. And then on top of that, there are just the struggles and pains of ordinary life. That it seems like if Jesus has come, if the king and the kingdom has arrived, that stuff should be fixed already. Or improved struggles and temptations and fears, pain from, from illness and pain from abuse and, and worries about my job, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for 2,000 years now, this suffering servant keeps sounding the same note. Lay down your life in front of me. Lay down your life in front of the world. Give it all up and come follow me into death. I read Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. We are regarded as the scum of the earth. Who wants to sign up? Again and again and again and again, there is no other note struck. And I sit like this. Oh. Did anybody ever see the movie Cocoon? Old, old movie. I don't remember nine-tenths of it, but I remember this scene. Maybe you remember this scene if you saw it. The premise of Cocoon is that a bunch of aliens come and start living in a retirement center. And so they look like elderly American retirees, but they're aliens. And there's one scene in which one, I don't know who it is, but some character, 75-year-old looking man, does this. Remember this? He pulls back with his finger, pulls back the corner of his eye, and out in the corner of his eye, lightning shines. Then he lets his finger up and it pops back and looks just like a 75-year-old man. And the, the other character says, what was that? Because he just showed him for a minute, the skin is just a covering. I'm something else. In a way, Jesus right here fully man, suffering servant. Come follow me. Let's become the scum of the earth together and die. But get this. I will not be humble, meek, and suffering forever. I will one day be exalted. Follow me. Lay down your life. Follow me as I lay down my life. Lay down your life with me. And you too with me will not be humble and meek and suffering forever. In due time, I will lift you up. I will exalt you. And I will shout out aloud over you the verdict that is already sounded in heaven over you, honored. One day I will shout that aloud for all the creation to hear over you, my child, honored. That's ringing out in heaven right now. Pulls back his eye and says, one day that will be crystal clear everywhere for everyone and you will be rolling in delight. All of you who lay down your life right now and pick up your cross and follow me. Or don't and you won't. Church This passage 
is a pulling back of the eyelid, or if you will, a pulling back of the covers and showing us for a moment the truth, the whole truth. He is indeed suffering servant, and it is indeed now the time that we follow him on that crucified Christ path trajectory. But one day he will come and he will reign in glory and us with him. When you feel like, ah, lift up your head. Lift up your head and see all of him. May the Spirit with his power at work in you give you eyes to see the blazing Jesus of glory while you also see the beaten and crucified Jesus, pierced hands, humble and meek. He is the Lord of glory, the one that we are called to follow. He has you and your life and is delivering you even now, still delivering you. He walks with you. He carries you. He's at work not just with you, but also at work in you, which brings us to the second point. What Jesus is doing. Jesus has come to lead his people out of bondage and into his kingdom rest. Jesus has come to lead his people out of bondage and into his kingdom rest, finally and fully so. We come to this by thinking about the opening event of the passage. I've already thought a little bit about the significance of Moses and Elijah, who they are in their Old Testament context. Is Moses, kind of the headwater, the, the leader, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the, the miraculous restorer and the one who indicates the coming of the Messiah. That's kind of who they are, but, but why are they here? Why did this happen? It seems rather random. Well, they're here because of what they talk about. They didn't just arrive. They arrived and had a conversation. And it says, they spoke with Jesus of his departure. Literally, as your footnote may point out, his exodus. And as soon as I say the word exodus, I hope that things like shining glory, blazing light, that hung over the people in the wilderness, and Moses, and the making of tents, like the booths that they lived in in the wilderness, and a cloud overshadowing people, and fear, and the voice of God sounding out of the cloud. I hope that all those dots begin to connect, and you realize, oh, this whole thing's about the Exodus. Sure. That's all Exodus imagery. This is an Exodus story. They're talking with him about his exodus, and we're supposed to, to look at that, see all the imagery, and start thinking about another exodus. The final exodus, of which the first one was a model, a type, a pointer, pointing forward, a predictor. You realize the Bible's full of, of images that are first and second, that are that are modeled and fulfilled. The easy example that relates to this story, Lamb of God. Lamb slain in the Old Testament. The Lamb of God, Jesus, slain 
All the lambs pointing to the lamb. The exodus pointing to the exodus. Which Jesus is about to accomplish. Literally fulfill. Complete. In Jerusalem soon. Jesus is going to accomplish his exodus like Moses accomplished his. But to make sure that we understand the connection correctly, we've got to think about what's actually at the heart of the exodus. The exodus certainly is about a, the people of God, Israel, moving, geographically moving from one location to another, but it's not really about geography. The exodus is about freedom from bondage to bondage. Freedom from bondage under Pharaoh to bondage under God. They're not just set free, do as you please, they're set free and brought out to Sinai where all this imagery is from, much much imagery is from, the shadow and the voice and the, the light shining in which God's law is given and he steps into the place of I am now your Lord, I am your king and what I'm doing is I'm carrying you on to my land of promised rest where I will dwell in your midst and I will be king over you. His kingdom. I'm taking you out of the kingdom of Egypt, out from underneath the bondage of evil Pharaoh to free you to my own bondage and my own kingdom, a land of promised rest, Canaan. Where there will be a perfect kingdom and a perfect reign, where there will be peace and joy, shalom and all of its goodness and fullness. God did that supernaturally with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He kicked it off with all the plagues, judging, judging, judging Egypt, and then finally sprung them loose with the sacrifice of the lamb, and they spread the blood over the doorpost. You remember the story? And they came out freed to become again ruled, ruled by God. That's the parallel, which is totally obvious. Polish it off by Moses couldn't bring you into the promised land. Who did? Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, whose name is, oh, for crying out loud, it's so easy, Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? The obvious parallels are amazing. Moses couldn't bring you into the promised land. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus could and did. Amazing. Jesus is about to, he will shortly at Jerusalem complete, fulfill his exodus. What's that about? Well, nothing other than the cross and the resurrection. Which he first talked about already earlier in this chapter. Crucified, I must be killed and then raised again. This is Jesus who's called the Lamb of God who will be slain to spring people free from bondage to accomplish an exodus. God sent his son to free his people from bondage. And if you think of the parallels again with Exodus, there's, a, there's the set free, they, they come out of the land, and then there's the journey of being worked on. And we see all the sin of the people and and the process that it took, 
but there's the, the setting free and the being worked on before the coming of the rest. This is the work of God right now going on in your life. He has set you free. And Christian, think about this. This, this should be a, 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 so, a so very present, constant note in your life. Bondage and freedom. Bondage and freedom. Bondage and freedom. And then I want you to add in bondage and freedom and being freed. Bondage and freedom. I have been set free. It is not common for us to think of ourselves, particularly when we're still non-Christians. If you're not a Christian, it's probably not the case that you think of yourself as in bondage, as a slave. But you are. We were. The Bible is very clear. The greatest slavery that we face is the slavery, the enslavement, the bondage to sin. It traps us and holds us and does not let us away. That's the problem that you and I, Christian, that you and I faced. That's the problem that he came to address. And there's a glorious, good truth that must always be right in front of us. This is the thing that if, if in every moment of, of despair, in every moment of trouble, in every moment of opposition from the world, every moment of just plain old ordinary suffering, if we could hold that and then right next to it hold it, I've been freed. This would move your heart if you grasp bondage, if you grasp the, the awfulness of depravity, that you've been set free from that, have been delivered into communion with Jesus, life. That is a great and glorious thing. But more than that, through all of that suffering, I'm holding here is my suffering and my freedom from bondage, through the suffering, there is an additional freeing going on. See the fingers overlaid right there? They are stuck together. He has freed you and is freeing you. And in fact, much of the difficulty that we face in this life I'm tempted to say all, but I'm not that smart. I think it's all, but I'll say much of the difficulty that we face in this life is deliberately the work of God put in us to free us, to continue to free us from our sin natures that remain. Jesus is about freeing us from bondage and freeing us on the way to everlasting promised rest. That's what he's doing in your life right now. Freeing you. You who have been freed. And it will happen. He has accomplished his exodus. All the pieces have been laid. He wins. He has begun a good work in you. He will carry it to completion. That's his business. So when he calls us to come and lay down our lives and promises to give us life in return, it is a certain promise. The exodus has been accomplished. He has freed you and he is certainly freeing you. Believe him and give it all to him. You know, that was the only thing required of people to get out of Egypt, to believe him. He did the work. 
he caused the angel to pass over the land and strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, except for those who believed him and trusted the blood. He parted the Red Sea. Those who believed him walked through. He did it again and again and again and again for all those who believed him and followed. He is a profoundly demanding king. And a profoundly good king who gives us profound promises of profit. I will give you life. I will free you from bondage. Not just once and for all. But once and for all and then continually. And when you look at all the hardship that this following me brings, and it does indeed bring much hardship, believe me when I tell you, I'm bringing you into the hardship to bring you out of bondage. How does that work? To make one example. I'm not sure what the best example is. Here's one example. I love my time. I, I love my schedule. And I have, to remind, I have to remember this, remind myself that when God pries my fingers open and pries my schedule out of my hand and causes me difficulty in that regard, suffering. I'm an introverted person. I at least want, I think I need alone time. And sometimes he causes me, pries my fingers open, and causes me to give up my time. And I feel stretched by that and threatened by it, in fact. And I have to remind myself he's doing a work in me. And you, pick your thing, he's doing a work in you. What, are you, what you hold like this is probably your idol. And when he pries your fingers off of it, that's a good thing. To cause you to let loose of things that are God's to you. That you might grow in faithful dependence on the one who is God and who is in fact good. That is a good thing. I have to remind myself as I see my schedule run away and my time get demanded of me. This is the goodness of God. The difficulty is actually the goodness of God. Freeing me from an idolatry of self. I picked that one because it's about me. What is it for you? I don't know. The sufferings and the hardships that he brings you are in fact his working in you to continue his freeing of you from your bondage. And it is a supernatural freeing that does happen. God triumphs. He's committed to it, and he carries you all the way to the end. So will you please, Christian, will you please hear him? Will you please look to him, and please, will you see him as the Lord of glory? And when you hear him say, lay down all of your life in front of me, and you face the hardship of that, will you do two things? Will you look and see the 
glimpse of his glory. And will you look and see the hardship that comes from laying down my life is actually as good for me. And then lay it down and follow him. Let me pray. Father, in some ways I talk about this in ignorance. Because I don't sit in the same seat or walk in the same shoes as some people in this room who face much greater suffering than I do right now. So you, Lord, who knows, you, Lord, who is in each of our lives and in each of our experiences. For those particular people stressed and strained and hard-pressed, will you draw near to them and show them the glory of the sun and show them the certainty of the sun's freeing work in their lives? Do that for all of us, please, but particularly for those who right now find themselves saying, yeah, but, yeah, I, I get that, but it still hurts. Lord, for those people, draw near and do a supernatural work. Reveal yourself to them. Give them clarity about the place their hardship sits in their lives, sits beneath your hand, sits as a tool in your hand, in fact, to work on them. Give them clarity about that and give them hope in you. Some here, Lord, who are evaluating you and thinking about you and aren't certain what to make of you, will you draw them to faith, please? Show them yourself as the only hope, as the only forgiveness, the only way to be freed from bondage to sin. We need you. Thankfully, you have come. So work in us, please. Do not stand off from us, but draw near to us. Move in us to, to give clarity to our thinking and to our seeing and to move us to follow your decrees, particularly to follow you in your kingdom-expanding work, even acknowledging the hardship that it brings. Make us faithful disciples, please. Thank you for being a good God, a kind Savior, the one that we need. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 
6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.